Good evening. Before we get into the text tonight, um, I have an announcement to make. Uh, this service has been going on now for, uh, we're closing off, our, I think, our third year uh, of, of doing this service on Sunday nights, uh, and pretty soon we're going to make a change. And the, the reason is, is not because of you, but because of me. Uh, you know, there's that story in the book of Esther where, where Haman hates a Jew by the name of Mordecai so much, he builds his own implement of execution, his own set of gallows. Um, but in a turn of uh, poetic justice or irony, he ends up hanging from his own gallows. Sometimes that's how I am with my schedule. I build a life and I'm like, all right, this is how I'm going to kill it. And then I end up swinging in the breeze, hanging from it. Um, and so for that reason, uh, some changes were necessary. Um, and what that means is in the long term, and I'll tell you how this is going to work out, in the long term we're going to move this service to Wednesday nights. Um, and again, mostly it's, it's for my own health, and I hope, I hope that that's a suitable change for all of you. Um, but here's how it's actually going to play out. We're going to continue as usual on Sunday nights through the 10th of November. That'll be our last Sunday night. Uh, and then we will begin again afresh, pick up where we left off in Jeremiah the first Wednesday in December. So there will be a couple of weeks off there. It's just the way the cadence worked out. I'm out of town and then we've got Thanksgiving. Um, and so it makes more sense to begin again on December 4th. So again, um, as per usual for the next few weeks, all the way through November 10th, we will be on Sunday nights. And then we will be moving to the same time on Wednesday nights, December 4th. Um, for those of you who know uh, children who are youth group age, uh, our youth group is also simultaneous to that, and of course you're welcome to bring them. There's something for them and something for you. Um, but, but anyways, that is the plan. Now tonight, the plan is for us to pick up in the book of Jeremiah, and Lord willing, make it through four chapters, beginning with chapter 17. Um, because we will lead it, need it later, I wanted to remind you of something we saw last week that's really important. Um, specifically in chapters 14 and 15, we started to see this phenomenon on the book, in the book where um, Jeremiah is sometimes interceding for the people, sometimes angrily calling judgment on those who are persecuting him, um, sometimes he is arguing with God, uh, and sometimes God is speaking through him. It's, it's very interwoven and entangled, and sometimes we have a hard time telling who's speaking in the book because Jeremiah is slowly taking on God's emotions. In other words, he's not just speaking the word of God, it's starting to embody him. It's starting to fill him up, um, and that's going to be significant for where we're going uh, tonight. Um, but first off, we begin, as we have so many times in the book of Jeremiah, um, with the stubborn sin of the people of Judah, chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It's engraved on the tablets of their heart. Okay. Uh, I remember reading a line probably in a Stephen King book speaking of a woman whose first impressions were written in Sharpie. 
right? It's the same idea here. It's that the sin has become permanently etched upon their hearts. It's not something that can be easily scrubbed away, but it's become, again, a part of them. They bear the scars, if you will, of their, their own sin. And then notice it says that they're on the horns of their altars. Now, Judah's sacrificial altar, the one that was in the temple, the one that the priests made use of also had horns. And as far as we can tell, the horns served two purposes. One was a practical purpose. That's how you would tie the living sacrifices to the altar. Okay? Uh, and second, they had a theological purpose. When the priest would take the blood as a mark of forgiveness available in the sacrifice, he would put it on the horns of the altar, a very visible place right at the top where it could be seen. Okay, and so it symbolized forgiveness. But notice two things about this expression here. Um, first, this is the horns of their altars, plural. Okay? This isn't talking about the altar in Judah, uh, but the altars of the pagan worships that have invaded every high hill across Judah. But the second thing I want you to notice is where, as usual, forgiveness is the thing that's inscribed on the horns. Here, it's their sins. Okay? It's, it's a counter image of what we would expect, but again, it speaks of the brazenness and the permanence of uh, Judah's persistence in sin. Verse two, while their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on high hills, on the mountains and in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places to sin, uh, price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for my anger, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. This is a relatively good summary of the argument that Jeremiah has made throughout the book, that because of this unrelenting generational pattern of sin and a lack of repentance in Judah, judgment is becoming inevitable and it will be just, it will be equal to their sins. What happens next though um, is new in the book, okay? It's not just a repeating of a thus saith the Lord. It's not just an oracle of the prophet. It's not an object lesson that Jeremiah acts out. It's actually most at home in the wisdom literature. In fact, if you were to look for a parallel for this passage we're about to read somewhere else in the Bible, Psalm 1, a wisdom psalm, would be a pretty good parallel. Here, Jeremiah begins to contrast the fate between the righteous and the wicked, the blessed man and the cursed man. And we don't actually up front know why he is laying out this contrast, but it will become clear as he does it. But it comes a little bit abruptly. Look at verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Okay, so the first person on one hand, if you will, uh, is the man who is cursed, and specifically it's the one who trusts in his own flesh, who trusts his own opinions, goes his own way, makes his own decisions, and therefore his heart turns away from the Lord. And in verse 6, we get where that road leads. It's a consequence. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Okay. Now, when it speaks there of um, 
not see any good come. The idea, a plant in a desert, the idea is that rain comes, but it's over there, right? Because this shrub, shrub is planted in the desert, it only experiences desert life. That'll become important with what we see next. Uh, but notice it's a shrub in a desert, and the place that it lives is dry, parched, uninhabited, a salt land, it says. In contrast, on the other hand, we have this other person, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. Okay, so what happens to the shrub when the good comes? Nothing. What happens to the tree when the heat comes? Nothing, okay, because of where they're planted. So even hard circumstances for the one whose trust is in the Lord are mitigated because the roots go right into the riverbed. And so there may be zero rainfall. It doesn't matter. They have their own supply of life-giving water. The shrub, however, even when the rain falls, misses it because it's off the grid, because it's planted in the wrong place. And so notice verse 8 says, He does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And that would be the last contrast that's probably worth pointing out here. The shrub doesn't bear anything, but the tree continues to bear fruit. Okay. Now, when Jeremiah moves on in the next verse, he doesn't actually move on. He actually just unearths the point of what's being said. And he says this in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the man, mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Okay, notice here, uh, this verse talks about, um, talks about fruit, which draws from this parallel we just saw, um, and it basically, uh, it basically says here that it's tough for us to judge if we're the shrub or the tree. Simply, that is the point that Jeremiah is making here. Um, if we could borrow a par parallel parable of Jesus's, you may remember he tells a parable about a sower who goes out to sow, and he sows seed in different places. And because the seed lands on different places, it leads to different outcomes, okay? And so the seed that falls on the hard, beaten path does nothing because the soil is too hard for the seed to be received. The seed that follows in the rocky soil goes down, takes root very quickly, but because it can't get a real foothold in the soil, it shrivels away in the sun. There's the seed that falls among the thorns, and because it's so crowded with weeds, it gets choked out and never produces any fruit. And then there's the seed that falls on good soil. Now, when Jesus explains that parable, he says the seed is always the same. The word is always the same. The power of that seed to bring life is the same no matter where it falls. What makes the difference is the soil, and Jesus says that's the heart, the receptivity of the heart determines the work of the word of God. And so the difference, if you will, between shrubs and fruit trees involves the heart. And the heart leads to either, it, borrowing another one of Jesus' sayings, thorns for a thorn tree or fruits for a fruit tree. Okay? 
But the problem is we have a hard time discerning which we are. It's very easy for us to hear Jesus' parable and go, well, I know exactly who the thorny soils are. I'm so glad I'm the good soil. But notice what he says here in verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a pretty um, strong statement about the core of who we are as human beings. When it uses the heart here, it's not just talking about the seat of the emotions, but in the Jewish mind, this is the place of the will, of your volition. It's the place of your deepest desires. And here it says the place of your deepest desires is clouded to you. It's deceitful. What you really want isn't totally known to you isn't fully exposed. In fact, it says here that it's desperately sick. There's a bentedness to the human condition that goes down to the core of who we are. And so we love the wrong things, and we want the wrong things, and we desire the wrong things. But this deception here is double dangerous because it's not just a bentedness, but a blind bentedness, right? We don't actually see that. We tend to assume at the core of myself, Everything's good. And I might make mistakes along the way, but that's because of circumstances. That's because there's no rain. And so, of course, I act out when things get really hard. No, you act out when things get really hard because you're a shrub. Okay? It's your nature. Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. In fact, he says that all the evils of mankind, adultery, murder, everything, flows out of the heart. When we say, that's not what I really meant, after we say something, we're very wrongly right. Most often, it's exactly what we really meant, we just never should have said it. That's not the same thing. Jesus says, there's something wrong at the core of your being, and your words and your actions reflect that. They're not against the grain of your character. They're not brought about because that person just makes you so angry. It's not, well, anyone would act the same if they were going through what I'm going through, A pastor of mine, Pastor Wayne, used to talk about how he used to drive his big truck in the morning with a big cup of orange juice, and how one morning he hit a huge pothole, and he said, as much as I would have wished that anything else but orange juice, say water would have spilled out of that cup, it's orange juice that spilled out of the cup. And he says, and it's not the bump in the road that made it orange juice. That just exposed the orange juice in the cup. But again, the danger that Jeremiah is going deeper, he's not just saying our hearts are bent. He's saying they're bent and we can't see that. We don't know that. The New Testament uses a similar phrase. It's the phrase blindness, but specifically spiritual blindness. And this is the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Because if you're physically blind, you know it. You're aware of it. It's a handicap that you're fully acquainted with and you learn to live with. But when you're spiritually blind, you're blind to your blindness. It's hidden. Okay? And so here, that's the condition. What are we to do if we can't know our own hearts? If we can't discern the deepest realities and if they're truly good or bad, if we are shrub or tree, notice verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the man mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Okay, so here we see total and perfect assessment equipped with total and perfect justice, okay? God sees the heart, but notice it says here he searches the heart. It's as if he sifts it, 
right? This is why the psalmist prays, search me and know my heart, O God, and see if there's any wrong way in me. The, the psalmist doesn't believe that our conscience is sufficient for that, that we can trust our instincts on when we're right or wrong. It asks for help. The psalmist says, search me. What's interesting is uh, it will become very clear, in fact, if you look at the whole book of Jeremiah, that the way God does this primarily is through his word. You see, generally when we think about what the Bible is or how God works when he speaks, we recognize that it is self-revelation. God says, here is who I am. These are the things that I've done. These are the things I'm going to do. Here's what the things that I did mean. Right? He's self-revealing. On top of that, he's also us revealing. This is who you really are. This is what I made you for. But we generally view the word of God as being informational when here, and in another place we'll turn to in just a second, uh, the word of God is better understood as transformational. Okay? Or I've been really fond of the word lately, because we've been studying Jeremiah and a few other places, confrontational. The word does something. Here, the word sifts the heart. It searches the heart. Listen to the words of the book of Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active. And just there, let me remind you how odd that is to talk about something that is written the scriptures, being living and active. Generally, if we identify a book, it is inanimate as opposed to animate. Okay? It's an object and an inanimate object. Also, when we interact with a book, generally it is the passive object, the thing that is acted on. The boy reads the book. But the word of God is both animate, living, and active. The book reads the boy. That's the author of Hebrews' point. In fact, notice what he says next. He says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and then listen to this, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word lays bare the real thoughts, not just the real thoughts of God, the real thoughts of you. It doesn't just lay bare God's intentions for your life, but it shows your real attentions. It's like a light that exposes. Okay. Jeremiah is making a similar point here when he contrasts these two things and he calls for God to search the heart. God's searchlight in our heart, the one that exposes what's really there, is his word. Okay. So let's go back, taking this idea back to Jeremiah and continue. Now, at the end of verse 10, he says, through this searching, through this testing, through knowing the depths of the heart, your real desires, whether acted upon or not, your real intentions, whether you understand them or not. He says, he gives to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, notice verse 11. Like a partridge that gathers a brood she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, they will be a fool. Okay. Now, this word here for partridge, like many of the um, statements about animals in the Old Testament or plants, 
we don't actually know what type of bird is being talked about here. We just don't have very many, um, you know, botanical and animal field guides written in Hebrew that give us the Hebrew names for things. But clearly it's referring to a bird here. And the reason the translators have chosen partridges uh, is because there's a handful of birds who will nest other birds' eggs, okay? Um, and I'm sure science probably has some reasons for why this happens, or at least best guesses. I don't actually know what they are, and it doesn't matter here because he's just talking about observationally what happens next. The partridge gathers a brood she did not hatch, the partridge sits on eggs that she did not lay, and then they hatch, and as they grow up, they start to recognize like the ugly duckling that's actually a swan. Hey, wait a minute, I'm not your child at all. It's not a good way to make a family, okay? And so his point is here, the person who gets riches in an unjust way, who chases money, who trusts in wealth and sees people as either a vehicle or an obstacle to get that wealth, who comes about it oppressing other people is just like this bird and eventually it will fly away. Now we need to recognize here that this is innately untrue if we stop at the graveyard. Okay. Plenty of people gather up wealth unjustly and have the entirety of it the day they die. Okay. But when he says here, in the midst of his days they will leave him and at his end he will be a fool it's because at the end, after that, he's going to be exposed for what he really is. He's going to have to give an account, not for his bank account, but for how he filled it. Okay. You may remember Jesus uses this same language. It's also wisdom literature language, the idea of the fool. right? If you read Proverbs, the fool is a normal character. Uh, and he uses it talking about wealth as well. He talks about a man who has a very good harvest and has so much to spare that most likely he could make a significant dent uh, in the hunger of the poor around him. But he doesn't come to those conclusions. Instead, he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I have more than I could possibly use for myself. And he goes, I know, I'll retire early. I'll big, build bigger barns and I'll fill them and then I can just live the high life for the rest of my life. And Jesus says, God spoke from heaven and said, you fool, don't you know your soul will be required of you tonight? Don't you know that tonight you will have to give an accounting? Not an accounting for what's left in the barn, but for that desire to selfishly serve yourself with the abundance that I gave you. And notice there, he's a fool for two reasons. One, because all of his future plans are not going to happen. Right? He's going to be interrupted in his plan. He'll never big, build those big barns. He'll never have those feasts tonight he dies. But second, because he will give an account for the choice that he made, even though he doesn't have a chance to fulfill it, okay? And so here, when it talks about the fool, it's, again, just like it says at the beginning of Proverbs, the fool is the person who in their heart says there is no God. And the idea there isn't just merely the foolishness of atheism, like who could believe that God doesn't exist? That's not the idea. It's who could live as if they won't give an account to God, that's the foolish move, okay? That's one that people who uh, frequent places of religion, who, uh, who make some sort of a pledge to a particular God who seek to honor them can also mistake. Sometimes we call this practical atheism, right? It's living as if you won't give an account. 
That's the problem of the wealthy man here. He's like a partridge who thinks, this will work out fine, and tries to hatch someone else's babies. Okay. Verse 12, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall put, be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now we get to the bottom of what's actually being talked about here. He basically says, in the end, it's either trust in God or have your trust fail you. In the end, it's choose the life of the shrub or the life of the tree. In the end, submit yourself to the will of God or go your own way. In the end, pursue God's definition of justice or experience justice nonetheless. Okay? When he references a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is our place of sanctuary. Remember, this is a little bit ironic in the book of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah has been criticizing Judah for feeling that since they have the temple, everything's going to be fine, right? They just say, oh, we don't have to worry about enemy armies because we have the temple. God dwells in our midst. We are invincible. And Jeremiah goes, no, you are hypocrites. It doesn't actually work that way. You can't just uh, ask if God is on your side if you've neglected to ask if you are on his But here, the idea of the sanctuary and a throne set on high is this final reality of God's rule. And it's not just the final reality of God's rule for Israel, uh, but for, for all nations. And so there is safety in God and in nothing else. But here's what's so striking. This whole time, we're nodding along and going, okay, so Jeremiah is basically speaking this forth to Israel and saying, hey, Two paths, life or death. Two ways, the way of the shrub and the way of the fruit tree. If you continue to deceitfully live the life of a fool, you will reap the fruit of your foolishness. But what's really striking is at the end, it actually seems like he's just doing a little bit of self-counsel. Because notice what he says here in verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Why is Jeremiah here meditating on the end game of the wicked? It's because he's struggling with the present tense reality of his persecution. He's being mistreated. In fact, uh, at the end of the night, we will find him thrown into the stocks. Uh, He is being plotted against. People want to see him die while he is still single so that they can just erase his name from the pages of history. And when he looks at their lives, he goes, why am I, the one who's being faithful here, suffering, and they, the ones who are basically wicked, are thriving in their wickedness? Again, there's a parallel to this in the Psalms, where the Psalms, uh, psalmist, presumably David, is pondering just this reality, the comfort of the wicked, the fact that injustice can reign plushly, in the world as we know it. He, and he goes pretty far. He says, even when they get to the end of their life, they die quietly in their sleep, surrounded by their loved ones. And he says, when I reflected on this and I looked at my own struggle, my own condition, remember David spent a good deal of time running from the unjust persecution of King Saul, constantly being chased. Uh, he says, when I looked at that, I almost stumbled. I almost threw in the towel. 
What's the point then of worshiping God, of being righteous, of pursuing justice? What's the point of me not repaying in vengeance? If this is how life lives out. And he says, but then I went to the temple of the Lord and I remembered their end. Jeremiah here is reflecting on God's final judgment because it's the only thing that will balance the scales of history. It's the only thing that would justify continuously doing the right thing when there's a wave of wickedness pressing against you. It's the only thing that would keep Jeremiah from throwing in the towel. When he talks about being healed and saved here, the idea is that he's in danger, that he's being attacked, that he's been wounded by the enemy, and he's desperate for God's salvation And here we get into what's actually going on, verse 15. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. Now, sometimes we don't keep this in mind when we read the book of Jeremiah, but his entire ministry from the beginning of the book to the end is only 22 years. Okay, Um, Over the course of that, he goes through five different kings and three major Babylonian attacks that take away a part of Judah until it's finally sacked. Um, But... Over the course of this time, he's been saying what's going to happen in year 22, continuously, regularly, consistently, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, the only one who seems to have a really hard life is Jeremiah. And so what he's pointing out here is he's saying, everybody else is saying, you keep saying that judgment is going to happen, where is it? In other words, they're labeling him a false prophet. This is similar to a recognition that the book of 2 Peter mentions. That there will come a time where people will ask, where is the supposed coming of the Lord Jesus? You say that Jesus is coming again. You say that he's going to set things right. You say that there's righteousness and judgment and all of these things. But every day is just like yesterday. Every generation is just like the one before that, and so it's been. And Peter points out the reason. He says it's because God is long-suffering and patient and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not being indifferent, but he's patient. And that patience here looks like extended difficulty for Jeremiah, doesn't it? Every year God delays his punishment is a year Jeremiah continues to endure it. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, I've not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. He says here, I haven't run away, nor have I basically just longed for judgment, nor have I gone, okay, Forget patience, Lord. Just lay them out flat so I don't have to suffer anymore. Now, he's being a little self-gracious here. We'll see, at least if he hasn't done that so far, he will by the end of the night. But his point is, he's still on task. He's still all for what God has come. He says, you know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let not me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. He basically says, am I even going to be alive to see the tables turn? 
Am I even going to survive being this present and persistent witness? And let me just remind you there, when, it, when he calls here for double destruction, almost every commentator I've read believes that that word double in this sense means proportionate and not actually double. Okay? That the idea is to the full and not twice what they actually deserve. He's not calling for God to forsake his justice just to slake Jeremiah's own pain and anger. It seems the way this is used in the Old Testament, it means proportionate. Okay. Now, what we have next is another oracle of, Ju- uh, of Jeremiah that's given to Judah, and here it focuses on just one issue. Okay. Whether or not people carry stuff on the Sabbath. Okay. Now, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy is one of the ten. It's part of the covenant. In fact, God identifies it as being one of the defining characteristics that sets Israel apart from the other nations. The fact that they have a God-ordained day off that they do no work on. Okay? Um, but as we read this, basically, Jeremiah is going to say, if you just stop here, all will be forgiven. Everything will be right. Just stop carrying through things on the Sabbath. And it's, it's one of three things going on. Either he's just plain illustrating, picking one illustration of what they're doing wrong because that's enough to condemn them. Like James says, if you break any law, that makes you a lawbreaker, right? Um, Two, the second possibility is here uh, that because the Sabbath is such a sign of the covenant, it's standing in for the keeping of the whole law. But third, and this is the one that I'm honestly most attracted to, it may be here that he's being reductionistic to make a point. The smallest and most external and easiest form of obedience. Just don't pick up a load and take it through the city gates on the Sabbath. But even that, they're unwilling to forsake. Even though they've been relatively positive on ritual, even though they've said, we don't need to be righteous in Monday through Friday because we come and bring our sacrifices on the Sabbath. We're doing the right things, but here he goes, all right, let's talk about the right things and see if you're doing it at all. And I think what he's suggesting here is by way of illustration, take the smallest and most simple part of it, even that you are unwilling to do. So verse 19, thus says the Lord to me, go and stand in the people's gate, which the kings of Judah enter and which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, hear the word of the Lord, your kings of Judah and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Now we're not told what day Jeremiah does on this, but you can imagine it'd be uh, doubly significant if he did it on the Sabbath. As if he's basically just preaching the Old Testament law to not bear a burden on the Sabbath as people walk by burdened by their things on the Sabbath. But even if he's not, he's here at the city gates because it's public and visible. If you want to know if Judah is interested in keeping the covenant, just look out your window on Sabbath and see if they're, you know, if the streets are empty. See if, if the gates have anybody carrying their business through it, Right? He says, verse 22, do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. 
Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, that they might not hear and receive instruction. But you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it. Then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and horses, and in their officials and in the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, this promise is significant for two reasons. One, it's been quite a while since, since uh, Judah has had a good king. Josiah is the last one. But one of the ways you can tell that is how short the reigns of the kings that follow are. Okay? Of the following four kings, two of them are three months apiece because of their wickedness. Okay? And so here's a promise that if you'll obey the Sabbath... I'll make sure your leadership is divine, uh, divinely empowered, not just as your deliverer, but as a leader of righteousness. And he says, this city shall be inhabited forever. And the people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places all around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings, frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Basically, he just says, if you'll just honor the Sabbath, I'll bring about restoration fully and completely in every direction. But, verse 27, if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter, on the, ga- uh, enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I'll kindle it a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Chapter 18. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. Now, we've seen God's communication with Jeremiah and Jeremiah's communication with Judah, his audience, in a whole diversity of ways. Sometimes God just gives Jeremiah a vision. He says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see an almond branch. And then God explains what the vision means. Sometimes he sends Jeremiah out to act out an object lesson. Sometimes Jeremiah just carries a straight out message. But here, he says, Jeremiah, I want you to come and see something happening physically on earth that I'm going to use as an illustration, okay? And so it's an object lesson for Jeremiah, and for this he's sent to the potter's house. Now, just as you've probably seen in the artist workshops of your local high schools, pottery has basically been done the same way all the way back here. And so imagine a wheel that you pump with your foot that spins another wheel horizontally and you put the clay on it and that's how you work the clay with the uh, centrifugal force of that spinning wheel. Same idea here. So verse 3, I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Okay. So the idea very simply here is he sees a man who's making a pot, but there's some sort of flaw in the clay itself, and so it just falls apart in his touch. It's not capable of the initial thing he was going to build of it. Okay? So imagine, imagine the clay has some lack of integrity, and he's trying to make a really long-necked vase, but as he's stretching it out, it becomes too thin and feeble, and it flops over. And he goes, okay, this particular batch of clay isn't sufficient for this type of vessel, I'll make something else out of it, okay? I'm just gonna make a really simple bowl, okay? That's the idea, and then here's the interpretation, verse five, the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, 
Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Okay, It's not a hard image to get. In fact, it's one we find in other places. You, O Lord, Isaiah says, are the potter, uh, are, are the father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. Okay, But the point that's being made here is, if the clay doesn't respond, can't I make something else? Since I'm the potter, am I not capable of having one destiny for you, and then if you don't respond in the right way for that destiny, to choose a different destiny? Okay. And so notice here, he says in verse 7, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster I intended to do it. If I'm making a vessel of judgment and the clay goes soft in my hand, if it repents, then I'm going to have a different destiny for it. Right? That's the idea of the potter metaphor here. Uh, in reverse of that, verse 9, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I'll build it and plant it. Now, pause. Did you notice that the language here, to tear down and destroy, to build and to plant, that's Jeremiah's commission out of chapter 1. His whole mission is to build and plant or to tear down and destroy, but here in this metaphor, those are two alternate realities depending on what the clay does, how the clay responds. Okay. He says, verse 10, if he does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I'll relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Okay. And so basically he says, what I'm making out of you, Judah, right now depends on how you respond to my making. And there's a double direction in this. Israel had an amazing destiny, promised all the way back to Abraham, descendants like the sands of the sea, it's spoken through the book of Deuteronomy. Tremendous blessing, being an abundance, abundant and glorious uh, presence of God's work on earth that would attract the nations. But the clay hadn't lived up to that destiny. But also here, as he's shaping it so heavily for judgment, there's still the chance for the clay to, to change, for the destiny to be different. God's point primarily here is as the potter, he still gets to decide the destiny. And also implied here is a righteousness with it. That he's not going to go, well, shoot, I had good intentions for you, but you've become a wicked people, but I guess I'll bless you anyways, because that was my original intentions. He reserves the right for creative revision. Right? Now, verse 11, Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Okay? Forget where you think this story is ending. I'm telling you where things are headed. But, he continues, he says here, Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and deeds. Don't suit the destiny. But notice verse 12, but they say, that's in vain. We'll follow our own plans and everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. They go, we're, we're not interested in your destiny or even the possibility of changing it. We're too busy with our own plans. Okay. And here, the idea of stubbornness, it almost evokes a new way of thinking about the clay, right? A clay that's calcitrantly not responding to what God wants to do, because this whole thing's a little bit meta, isn't it? 
God is the one shaping the clay. He's the one determining the destiny, but the clay has a part in that destiny. Uh, But ultimately here, they're stubborn to God's part. The metaphor breaks down a little bit, and we'll see there's a reason for that. Um, pretty soon but we continue here in verse 13 therefore thus says the Lord ask among the nations who has heard of the like of this the virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing there's only a handful of times that Jeremiah here identifies Israel as the virgin Israel here it's semi um, it's it's not necessarily satirical but it's to emphasize the horror of what they've done that her destiny was one of chastity of being devoted to one God, of serving one God, and that makes the horror of her infidelity even greater. And then notice verse 14, does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? Okay, the things about, thing about high mountain elevations is because they get the snowpack, they don't really have water problems, right? In fact, it may be that the best way we should understand this idea of the snow of Lebanon leaving the crags of Syrian is snow is safe unless it's moving. Or to put it the other way, if it's moving, it's no longer safe, right? It's no longer snow, it's melting, it's falling away. As long as it stays put on the mountain, it's secure, okay? It may be that that's what's being expressed, but either way, the idea is uh, that they were in a good place and that they had forsaken it that they were planted next to the stream like we saw in the last chapter and they're uprooting themselves to go to the wilderness. He says, verse 15, my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror and a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by is horrified and shakes his head like the east wind. I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Now, notice there, there's an order. Because they have forsaken me, I will turn away from them. Right? That's the idea here, verse 18. Then they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay any attention to his words. When verse 18 starts with then, there's two ways to read it. Either the idea is that Jeremiah is still conveying this, and so God opens up the call for two possible uh, destinies, and they reject the possibility at all. Uh, Or the idea is here they hear this message, and then they respond, and they basically say, you know what, we already have a message of where things are going. We already are acquainted with our destiny. All the other prophets tell us we're headed to peace and prosperity. We'll choose that one, thank you. Okay. Please don't reapply. And so they say, come, let us strike him with the tongue. Let's not pay any attention to his words. And then hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Jeremiah again begins to pray to God. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they've dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Okay, so he's talking about two things here. He says, I've, for the good of my nation, called them to repentance. And he says, I've also, against the bad of my nation, interceded for them. I am for them, I'm doing them good, and they've responded by doing me evil. 
They've dug a pit for my life. Verse 21, therefore deliver their children up to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. For they've dug a pit and laid the snares for my feet. Now this is pretty intense. This is what we would call an imprecatory prayer. He's calling judgment down upon his enemies. Okay? It's not uh, unknown in the Old Testament. Some of the psalms are imprecatory psalms. But it is a surprising thing to come out of Jeremiah the interceder. The one who earlier was saying, can't you just overlook all of this and just be good to them anyways? And I think the first thing we have to notice here is, if anything, Jeremiah is more reflecting God's heart here than he has been because God is the one who's been betrayed by Israel. God is the one who's spoken of his wrath and his anger and the inevitability of judgment. I know this is a weird thing to say, but to some degree, what, what he says here is just repeating what God said he was going to do earlier with an amen. Okay. Now, when we ask, what do we do with a passage like this? There's a couple of options. One is basically to say, the Bible does contain the word of God, but this passage is not it. This is just a sub-good, okay? a, a fall, a weakness a very human passage where we understand where Jeremiah is coming from, but it's a terrible thing. It's not to be, uh, it's not to be a model to us. Uh, it's not something we should settle for. It's just human. Okay. Now, in Jeremiah, it's actually possible to do that. And the reason I say that is because when we read the Bible, we believe that it's the word of God in its full message. And that message is made up of every sentence. But when, for example... Satan in the book of Genesis says, you shall not surely die. That's only the word of the Lord in the context of a right record of the words of Satan. We can't say, look, the Bible says we shall not surely die. That doesn't work, right? In the same way here, we're watching Jeremiah not just convey the message, but wrestle with being the conveyor of the message. So we could take a step back and see this in that context. However, like I said, we don't just find passages like this here. We also find them in the Psalms. And the Psalms operate individually as a collection of Israel's set-apart and designed worship hymn book, right? As the, the uh, sanctioned prayers of God's people. And to be honest, some of those are a lot more intense than this particular prayer. And the thing is, when you look at how the Psalms are understood by the Bible, because they're individual and because the whole is taken, you need to remember that Jesus has no problem quoting from one of the Psalms and then saying, for the word of God cannot be broken. Okay. You need to remember that uh, in the book of Acts, when it quotes the Psalms, it says, for as the Holy Spirit said. And that's surprising because here we're reading the record of a prophet who constantly says, thus saith the Lord. Where do the Psalms say, thus saith the Lord? Many of the Psalms are David's emotional responses to the things happening in his life. But the New Testament maintains that they are significantly and truly the word of God. Even though they're the words of God's emoted through the hearts of humankind. Okay. So, it's harder to do that with the Psalms. And when we do just set aside particular things we don't like in the Bible, it's like unraveling 
the Bible as a whole by just pulling loose one thread. There are two different ways to deal with this, both which I think are more effective, okay? Uh, The first is to recognize that we can both desire forgiveness and justice, okay? So, for example, in the book of Romans, it tells us that the reason we should do good to our enemies is because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, we're not to bring about judgment on our enemies, and one of the reasons is because we can trust that God will ultimately be just. We don't have to go vigilante, okay? And so we can love our enemies, not just because we are also sinners, but also because at the end of time, justice will be done, and so we don't have to worry about balancing the scales in a, you know, eye-for-an-eye fashion, okay? Um, Consider the martyrs in the book of Revelation. These are people who are beheaded for believing in Jesus, and they're under the throne, crying out in heaven, how long till you bring judgment on those who have treated us this way? Is that sub-Christian? Not necessarily. The desire that people would be forgiven, the surrendering of our ability as judge, and the desire that God will ultimately be just on the wicked are not necessarily ideas that can't be integrated. It may be here that Jeremiah uh, is expressing an aspect, but not the whole of these things. Another way you could go about this is to recognize that there is a difference in dispensations between what we're reading here or in the Psalms and where we live as Christians. Okay? In other words, because Jesus has come, things have changed. Okay? Uh, When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for our enemies, to forgive our enemies, he may be saying, this other way is now a closed door for followers of Jesus. And so the Old Testament, like much of the Old Testament, becomes something we observe at a distance. All the Bible is for us, but not all of it is to us. You're not called to sacrifice a lamb every Passover anymore because Christ is our sacrifice, right? You are now called to forgive because Jesus has so abundantly come, paid the penalty for your sins that he now calls you to forgiveness. I think both of those ways are better than a way that seeks to dismantle the word from our deceptive heart position and ends up sawing off the branch we're seated on, okay? Either... The Bible interprets us or we interpret the Bible. Now, we're always involved as interpreters. We have biases and blind spots and all of those things. I'm talking about in the final sense of who gets to determine. Either the Bible interprets us or we interpret the Bible. And so both of those are approaches that I would suggest are better uh, than just trying to edit things out of this being possibly something God is responsible for. Okay. But I will actually suggest in a second, that there is a deeper thing going on here. Okay? Like I said, if we just read this book in and of itself, apart from the deep doctrines of Christianity, this sounds like Jeremiah coming to terms with God's opinions and starting to embody them. Okay? All right, chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask. Okay? Do you see the similarity here? So first, go to the potter's field and watch a man make a pot. Now go buy a pot for yourself. Okay, that's important. 
okay? And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Okay, so get the idea here. He goes out to the same valley uh, that we've read about earlier that, that past tense was used for the sacrificing of children, child sacrifice, and future tense will be used for a burial place after Babylon kills so many in Jerusalem. They won't have, you know, be a mass grave, okay? This is where he goes. He's got a big clay pot under his arm, and he's got a chosen selective audience that represents the people, the elders, okay? And so he speaks to them, and he says here in verse uh, 3 again, Behold, I'm bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Okay, the idea there being, did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Right, it'll be the talk. Verse 4, because the people have forsaken me, and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they've filled this place with the blood of innocents and have built the high places of Baal to turn their sons into the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the place shall no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter." Here he's repeating something we already know from earlier in Jeremiah, but notice this in verse 7. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. That phrase there, make void, just means to empty. We're not told that Jeremiah does this, but it would be understandable if his clay pot is full of water, and at this point he turns it over as he's talking. Okay? He says, I'm going to bring your plans, Jerusalem, to nothing. Okay? And I will cause the people to fall by the sword before their enemies and the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. And I'll make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor. Now that's a pretty intense statement, but here's what it's talking about. When Babylon does come in, they set up a siege around Jerusalem, a walled city. Their army surrounds it, no coming in or no coming out, and they just stay put for two years until Jerusalem runs out of food and starts making some horrible, difficult choices of eating their dead and, in some cases, of eating the weak. Okay? Historically, we know that this was a very common outcome of sieges. In fact, we have a couple of biblical happenings of this, including this one, that talk about this. Okay? He says, in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will afflict them. Verse 10, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Do you see the contrast between the last chapter? What happened when things fall apart on the potter's wheel? It can be remade in a different way. But once it's fired... Once it's dry and brittle, now if there's a, you know, and remember here, he's not just knocking it off the table. A little bit of, uh, you know, gorilla glue is not going to cut it. He takes it and he throws it down into the valley. It shatters. There's no putting it back together. What's the difference between these two things? Hardness. Okay. Unrelenting, stubborn, unyielding. These are the words that represent where Judah is at. And so because of that, He's going to bring this judgment, and it's going to be a shattering. 
okay? He says, so I will break the people in this city as one breaks a potter vessel so it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. Okay, now he pushes further. Earlier we'd read that, that uh, Topheth was going to be this po- place of mass burial because there won't be time or graves to do dignity to the dead. Okay? Now he says actually the whole city is going to be a mass grave. Okay? Verse 13, the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whose roofs offerings have been offered to all the host of heaven and the drink offerings have been poured out to other gods shall be defiled like the place of Topheth. Okay. Now, there's two types of religions we find in the Old Testament, pagan practices. One involve public places of worship and community worship, and others involve household private practices. The worship of the heavens here is of that second category. It's not too far removed from modern-day versions of astrology. Okay? There is no astrology church. Right? You don't gather for astrology worship on Sunday, but it's a private practice of a belief. Right? In the same way here, what he's pointing out is worship didn't just happen in the Valley of Topheth or in the high hills. It happened in the living rooms and on the rooftops, which is where you go when the day is cool and your house is hot, right? in the evenings, um, privately in people's lives. And he says it's all been defiled, so it's going to be defiled. It's all been used for pagan practices, so it's all going to be destroyed. Verse 14, then Jeremiah came from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophecy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon this city and upon all the towns and all the disasters that I pronounced against it because they've stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. Okay. So he does this in demonstration for the elders and then he goes to the temple and the next season he preaches the meaning of it. And you can imagine the elders going home and going, you will not believe what Jeremiah did today, right? And so everybody's connecting the dots on this issue. Okay. Now, this leads to a reaction, a response. As he's preaching this in the temple, Pasher, uh, who is the overseer of the temple precincts, he's the one who keeps the orders of what happens around the temple, he decides to take action. Very quickly, we're going to do this last chapter, and then we'll close for the night. Now, Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate in the house of the Lord. Okay, so first he beats him up a little bit and then he puts him in the stocks. Now most likely this isn't like the uh, 17th century stocks that you've seen images of. Again, we don't know what this word means except that it literally means to bend over. Okay. So maybe he just put him in a really tight cave where you would just you know, stiffen up and cramp if you were lep- left there for time. But it does seem to be public, doesn't it? It says that he, he's put somewhere in the gates. He is being publicly punished and humiliated, whatever this practice is. And notice he's being punished and humiliated on the entrance to the temple. As people come in and out of the temple, they're used to seeing Jeremiah prophesying his gloom and doom, and now here he is with a black eye in the stalks being mocked. Okay, that's, that's the point of this punishment. In fact, he lets him go after 24 hours. It's just to make a point. Okay? Verse 3, the next day when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, behold, I'll make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. 
and I will give all of Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with a sword. He says, I'm going to give you a new name, and your new name is your destiny. Terror on every side. Everybody is going to hear what happens to you, and it's going to be a horrible story, is basically what he says here. Um, but notice, again, it's not some sort of specialized act of judgment. He doesn't call down fire from heaven. It's the same thing that's going to happen to all Jerusalem. And he basically says, Pastor, you're going to endure the things that I talked about. You're going to experience them as well. Verse 5, moreover, I'll give all the wealth of this city and all its gains, all its prized belongings and its treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity to Babylon. You shall go, and there you shall die. Now, we know that this actually happens during Jeremiah's lifetime because a little bit later in the story, we find a new overseer of the temple, okay? After, during the days of Jehoiakim, Babylon comes in the first time and takes all of the leaders of Israel. That includes Pasher, okay? Verse uh, 6, he says, There you'll die, there you'll be buried, you and all your friends whom you have prophesied falsely. Now, we finish here. Jeremiah gives the prophecy as God commanded. He's beat up and thrown in the stocks. He responds by saying, I'm not going to back down. In fact, you're going to endure this judgment too. You might as well change your name. And then he begins to cry out to God again privately. And this is what he says. O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. And so he says, you tricked me, God. You forced me to do this. Now, it's actually a bit more intense than that. The word there for deceived is the word that's used for seduced. When the Old Testament law talks about what should happen to uh, a rapist, this is the language that it uses, word for word. He's basically saying, you, you led me out into the woods with false intentions, and then you took advantage of me. It's very strong language that Jeremiah is using here. He says, I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Right? He just experienced that yesterday. In fact, I haven't had time to look at this, but I'm pretty sure the etymology of laughingstock and stocks go hand in hand. Okay. Uh, verse 8, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. Okay. And he says, the only message I have to give is one of constant destruction. He, he says, basically, I'm living the judgment that's coming. I'm embodying the message. And he says, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. He says, I've tried to bite my tongue. I've tried to throw in the towel, but your word is so present in me, and it burns in such a way that I have to speak it. And then verse 10, for I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Does that sound familiar? That's the name that he gives to Pasher. But now everybody said, actually, it's a better name for Jeremiah because everywhere he goes, it's gloom and doom, right? And so this is his nickname now, okay? Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends. You can imagine what their enemies are saying, right? Watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, the persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. Okay, here, it's, it, he changes his tone entirely. 
First, he says, God, this is all your fault. You're so mean. And then he says, God, you're my only hope. You're the one who will protect me. And we go, how can he do so so quickly? But we all know how he does so so quickly because we've been there, right? This is tremendously emotional for Jeremiah, and he's wavering and swinging between places. He bounces back a little bit here. He remembers the promises that God has made him. He says, they will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind. Remember when he was meditating on that a few chapters ago? Let me see your vengeance upon them for to you I have committed my cause. Okay. Again, notice that he defers vengeance there. His response to violence is not violence. But the reason is because he can trust God to take care of justice, right? And then notice verse 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. What a revolution in the way that he's feeling. He swings into worship for he's delivered the life of the needy from the hands of the evildoers. He says, bloody and bruised. Okay. And then suddenly, all the way down the other way, verse 14, cursed be the day on which I was born. Praise be to God, cursed be my birthday. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Do you notice that he doesn't curse his parents here? He can't do that. Honor your father and mother is the way of the road. So he closes in the area of his parents, right? Curse my, uh, the day my mother bore me and curse the man who gave my dad the good news. It's as close as he could get, right? He says, let that man, the man who gave my dad a cigar, right? Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. That's Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? He says, let fire and brimstone consume the man who thought it was a good idea that I was born, right? Let him cry in the morning, hear a cry in the morning and alarm at noon, okay? So he came bringing this one message of good news, let the security alarm be constantly going all day in his life because things are so bad, because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Now, the last time Jeremiah talked like this, God called him to repentance. He said, come back, turn around. Stop it with the words of bitterness and let me give you the words of life and get back to work. But here, he says that and then it's over. And when we open up in chapter 21, we just move forward in the story. It is the low point of Jeremiah's um, confessions. We won't find another place like this. But here's the thing. As hard as it is to see what we read earlier as the word of God when Jeremiah calls for justice and for vengeance on his enemies. What about here, where he despairs of life itself? And even though God says, I knew you, I formed you in the womb, I chose you, Jeremiah says, I wish I would have never been born. Okay. Here, clearly, he feels utterly and completely forsaken by God. Remember how this song starts, you've taken advantage of me. And this is another thing we find throughout the scriptures. It's very similar to what Job says. Okay. But here's the thing. When we look at Jeremiah, like I said, he's not just the messenger of the word of the Lord. It's not just we find the word in his mouth. We actually find him embodying the word of the Lord. 
And it, his, his own body becomes the battleground for judgment and hope for the unrepentance of the people and for the salvation that God offers. For all of these things are just kind of mixing in him. Um, but what's more fascinating than the embodied nature of the word of God here is the incarnate word of God in the New Testament, who not only comes, but takes on our suffering and prays a prayer like this. You remember, as Jesus hangs on the cross, Jesus, who constantly taught people and personally refers to God throughout every gospel in the same way as my Father, prays on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes a lament like this and he speaks it as he dies on the cross. And the thing is, the incarnation is not just about the word becoming flesh like it does in Jeremiah, but, but that flesh becoming part of God. Right? Jesus takes on the full lament and the struggle and the pain of the suffering. And unlike Jeremiah here, who takes on these things unwillingly, Jesus does it willingly. I don't know if I've read this during Jeremiah yet. I probably have, but it's still a good place to end tonight. Um, this is from the German philosopher Jürgen Moltmann. And listen to what he says here. He says, when God becomes man in Jesus of Nazareth, he not only enters into the finitude of man, but in his death on the cross also enters into the situation of man's God-forsakenness. In Jesus, he does not die the natural death of a finite being, but the violent death of a criminal on a cross, the death of complete abandonment by God. The suffering and the passion of Jesus is abandonment, rejection by God, his Father. God does not become a religion so that man participates in him by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. God does not become a law so that man participates in him through obedience to a law. God does not become an ideal so that man achieves community with him through constant striving. He humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken so that all the godless and God-forsaken can experience communion with him. Let's pray. At the end of the book of Job, Job encounters God in such a way that he covers his mouth and says, I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm not going to speak anymore. It's a similar thing when we look at the cross, Lord. As much as we may wrestle with some of the passages in the Old Testament, with some of the tone, with some of the judgment, by the time we get to the cross, we find a God who comes and takes that judgment willingly and freely and lovingly upon his own shoulders who enters into our lament, who bears the curse for us, who tastes to the full death so that we might have life. Again, God, we're just driven to our knees in gratitude and we thank you for that death. And that's the reason why we can afford to be soft and pliable in your hands because you're not just some all-powerful 
but cancerous being who will shape us in any way he pleases, Lord. But the one who entered into human flesh and human history, entered into our suffering and our shame, and is even as profound as it is, as Moltmann says here, even into our God-forsakenness. And did what we could not do to give us life. As we saw last week, Lord, can the leopard change his spots? No. But God can take on flesh and pay the full penalty for our sins and give us new life, including your spirit. And that changes everything. We thank you for that tonight. We praise you for your word and for the word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.